Uh, one housekeeping thing that I forgot to mention during announcements uh, that I was reminded I need to mention. Uh, as we head into the new year, um, as the church, one of the ways that we uh, communicate and store information is our church database. Uh, we're going to be switching our database software in January, um, which for the most part doesn't affect anyone. What we do want to do is make sure we have everyone's information up to date so you can get emails, um, have your address, uh, or if you want to like, not get anything from us, that's fine too. Um, but one thing that is uh, important to note is that if you, if you do any kind of online giving, and a lot of people do online giving or have reoccurring giving, um, we're going to be getting a new merchant account, so that is going to have to switch over. And so um, that's going to happen on January 1st. We're going to leave a little bit of an overlap to give people some time to switch to the new system. Uh, but wanted to get it on your radar now as we're about a month out. And if you do online giving that way, um, just a heads up that it's going to be switching to kind of a new merchant account. Super fun, right? Yes. But it's going to be, we, we decided as a, as a new church, as a young church, while we're still small, we want to get onto the kind of database software that uh, we want now, why we can switch it while we're somewhat small still. So with that being said, Matthew chapter 1. Today is the first Sunday in a season called Advent. And Advent is this idea of waiting with great anticipation. And we believe as a church, uh, the Advent, that Christ came into this world. And this is why we celebrate Christmas. And we believe that Christ will come again. And so Advent is about the once and future coming of Jesus into this world. I was really excited this fall because there was a movie coming out on Netflix called Outlaw King. I don't know if any of you have watched it yet. I was excited because uh, I saw some of the previews for it. It was a film that was released at the Toronto Film Fest. And it's about Robert the Bruce in Scotland and his war with the English to free Scotland. I had first heard about Robert the Bruce from the movie Braveheart. If we have any Braveheart fans in here. Um, I am kind of a, a history nerd, and I love like the epic uh, battle scenes of, of some of those movies. And so I was really excited about this Outlaw King movie coming out. Uh, it's kind of like a, an, an unofficial sequel um, to Braveheart, and uh, couldn't wait to watch it. So Turn It On comes out, I think, in November. And one of the things that I noticed as I'm watching this movie is that, yes, it's an amazing story. It's kind of historically accurate. Um, but the way that it's shot and the way that uh, the story is told um, is fascinating. Uh, the, the, the director uh, who, who shot this film, uh, the first scene in the movie is an eight minute long shot. And so like filmmakers will call this idea tracking where it's not just like different scenes, but it's an actually an eight minute ongoing scene of these actors playing out this role of Robert the Bruce and the, I think it's King Edward of England and the sword fight that takes place. And, and, it was, and as I was watching it, I was like, this is all one shot. So I went back and I watched it again and I couldn't believe how they shot this scene, an eight minute long scene that's like unheard of in movies these days, that you would have a scene that's just one eight-minute ongoing scene. Fascinated. And it was absolutely intrigued after that. Not only was this an interesting story, but it was being told in an interesting way. Um, great movie, super violent. If you don't like that, don't watch it. Uh, but I loved it. Uh, <laughs> but I also, I loved just the way that it was told. And, and after I watched the introduction, completely engaged. Some of the best storytellers will tell you 
that the introduction of a story is the most important part. You can capture the audience right away. Uh, and some famous stories start with words that when we hear them, they just kind of ring true. Uh, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> like, we know what that story's talking about, right? Like, it captures our attention. Um, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It, it brings up something that when, when you hear an introduction, it, it, it completely engages you, the audience, and the story. I, I've been told even with preaching, when you're, when you're preaching, your introduction has to be interesting or everyone tunes out right away. Like, I try to have an inter, inter, introduction that lets you at least hold your attention for five minutes before you tune out. But um, when it comes to the story of Jesus, the story, there's four accounts in scripture called the Gospels that tell the story of Jesus. And when it comes to the story of Christmas, the first Christmas, each Gospel writer has a different style, focus on kind of different details, and communicates something different about who Jesus is and what he's doing in this world. So for the next four weeks, we want to talk about these four approaches to this Christmas story. So Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. And we're going to start with Matthew today. And what I find interesting about Matthew is he's about to tell the greatest story that's ever been told. He's telling the story of, of the Son of God coming into the world. And here's how he starts it. You can read along with me in Matthew chapter 1. Here's his catchy intro. It says, A genealogy of Jesus, a record of the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, and I'm going to mispronounce these words, so I hope I do so the right way, um, whose mother was Tamar and Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Mother of, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. Oh, David, we know him, King David. <laughs> David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Esau, Esau the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Jeroham, there, uh, Jotham, Father of Ahaz, Ahaz, father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, father, yada, yada. Okay, Amon, father of Josiah, Josiah, the father of Jeconoah, I think his name is, and his brothers at the time, in the time of the exile of Babylon. Are you guys, like, intrigued? <laughs> After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheotil, Sheotil, father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, father of... Abiud, Abiud, father of Eliakim, father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, Echem, more names, more names, more names. Finally, Jacob, father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, Jesus was born, and who is called the Christ. Thus, there were 14 generations, and all from Abraham to David, 14 from David, the exile of Babylon, 14 from the exile to Christ. How many of you start the Christmas story reading that to your family? Great introduction, right? Like, what is Matthew thinking? 
And when we tell the Christmas story to our children, how quickly do we, we skip over that and go straight to the angels and the shepherds and the wise men, right? We want to get through that. I can't think of how many times I've set out, like, I'm going to read the Gospels this year, and I get to Matthew 1, and I'm about halfway through that list, and I'm like, okay, <laughs> let's skip through this to the good stuff. Like, this is like, why, why are people, why is this important? What is Matthew doing here? And if introductions are important, and Matthew is this great storyteller, wouldn't he know that we need to capture people's attention right from the get-go? Why start off with this list of names are hard to pronounce. Why do this? What's going on here? What is Matthew thinking? Today I want to suggest that as Matthew tells the story, the way that he approaches the story of Jesus coming into the world is from a historical standpoint. He looks backward first. And it's important to note that Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience in the first century. For the Jewish audience, they would have their Old Testament, which would have been their scripture, the Old Testament that we know today, and they would have known that story inside and out. They would have heard that story early on. They would have memorized it. They would have uh, known all the nuances, these characters in the story. This would have been important to them. And so as they're hearing these names, there's a couple observations the first century Jewish audience would make. And I want to kind of make those observations for us today. So a couple, couple observations. The first is this, and the first observation in this story, the introduction to the Christmas story, is that there's this phrase, an account of. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, the first audience would have received this in a language that is Greek, uh, and it would have had a phrase that was a Greek phrase. Um, at the time of Jesus, the Old Testament, they had that also in Greek form, even though that was written in Hebrew. But this is a little literary device that the author puts in that would draw the story back to the creation story in Genesis. And this little phrase comes up in Genesis chapter 2. It says, this is an account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. They would have heard this, a record of the genealogy of Jesus, and it would have had the same tone to it as their creation story. This phrase is used again at Genesis 5.1. It says, this is what was written. This is the written account of Adam's line. Remember, Adam and Eve. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them. So if you're hearing the story in the first century, you would say this story is starting the same way that old story of our creation and our identity started. There's something there that is paralleled here, this little phrase. John does this in his gospel too, as he says, in the beginning was the word. It starts the same way as Genesis 1 starts. And so for the first century Jewish people who hear this story of Matthew, they would say Matthew was telling a story here but he's starting it the same way as our old, ancient, and sacred text about something about our identity, as what it means to be human. There was a, a story about the first man, Adam, and now there's a story about a man named Jesus who is coming into this world. So it's an old story, but it's a new story that's being told, and it's about this man named Jesus. 
So this would have been something that would alert them, this first century audience, as they're, as they're observing this story that Matthew is telling. There's something going on here where there's a parallel to the old story. We've heard this story before, and now it's being told through the lens of Jesus. Second observation they would make is this phrase, the son of David. There's these kings that are in this genealogy. And so when we read through these names, they're hard to pronounce, and we think, what in the world is going on? Why is this important? But for the first century audience, there's names of kings that are in this lineage. And one of the claims as Jesus comes into the world is that he is king, King Jesus. And it's a different kind of kingdom that Jesus is about. And he is then, the genealogy is the kings of, of David, one of the greatest kings uh, to live for God's people. What's also interesting of what's, what's happening in this time is there's other kings that, who are alive. One named Caesar, uh, Caesar who rules the Roman Empire, who called himself son of the gods, who has a delicious salad that's named after him, who Caesar claiming divinity. But also there was this local king named Herod that was around in the time of Jesus. And Herod comes to the throne through kind of a series of rebellions and civil wars. He gets propped up by the Roman state. He becomes kind of like a puppet ruler in the world that Jesus is born into. And as Jesus kind of comes onto the scene, there's this man named Herod who is ruling, and it's really controversial. The Jewish people are excited because they kind of have a little bit of their freedom back, but they also know that this is a puppet ruler from Rome, and this guy named Herod. One of the things that was controversial was that he doesn't have a genealogy that says he should be king. In fact, he's part Edomite. And so this guy named Herod, who's the ruler, he's a pretty controlling and scary guy, and He's trying to protect his own kingship. So what he does, knowing that he doesn't have a genealogy that proves that he's the king, he decides to destroy all of the lists in genealogy. When I was watching that movie, Outlaw King, Robert the Bruce has this claim to the throne because he has the bloodline of the king. This is something we don't really understand or we don't really, or actually maybe we understand better. Like, there's nothing special about your blood, right? And so we don't, we don't have monarchs who rule us. We don't have families that the bloodlines pass down. In Outlaw King, they did. In this time when Jesus is born, they did. And Herod's out there destroying these genealogies. And so when Jesus arrives and he claims that he's king, the author Matthew is saying, and there's something here that is legitimate about this. In his line is King David. Jesus is the true king, and Herod is the imposter. There's something unique that's going into this telling of the story that the first century audience would hear this and think, Jesus, king. Third observation in, in this list is the names that are listed. There are women and Gentiles in this genealogy. Why is that important? Well, there's four women that are listed. Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, Rahab, Ruth, and Tamar. And what's interesting is that three of those women are Gentiles. And so in the lineage, in the genealogy of Christ, we have Matthew drawing attention to not just the men, not just the patriarchs, but to women, saying these women are a part of the story. These women have value. There's something here in, in the family of Christ that it's not just about men. There's stories here of women, and there's stories here of Gentiles. And I think this is important because as Matthew is, is telling everyone about the family of Christ that has passed down through the centuries, he's saying there's this, this barrier between Jew and Gentile 
that, that as you can see, there's Gentiles in the story. The barrier between male and female, that they're both created in the image of God, and the women are given a voice in this story. God's activity is not limited to just men or just the people of Israel. Matthew is saying that this story of Jesus is bigger than what you originally imagined. It's not just for these people or for these men, but this story is for all people. Jesus is for everyone. If you are human, Jesus is for you. The story of Jesus is bigger than what you imagined. And as you're reading through that, you would see these names and you would think, why would they put these names if they're trying to to bring legitimacy to his kingship? And yet there's a story of women. There's a story of Gentiles, people that were outside. The fourth observation is that there's this story, this kind of narrative of brokenness in this list of names. I mentioned Bathsheba. Bathsheba and King David have a scandal on hand. Our men's group on Friday mornings has been kind of going through the life of David and and David, King David is this man who's after God's own heart, and as we kind of read the story, we're a little bit terrified at some of the things that David does. But maybe one of the biggest scandals that he's, he's known for is when he messes up with Bathsheba, has this affair, has Bathsheba's husband murdered to give birth to this. And this is in the family of Jesus. Matthew doesn't leave this out. Matthew tells this story, and he says, this scandal, by the way, was there. He lists some of these other names, this man named Uzziah. Uzziah became a king at the age of 16. So he's in this kingly line. Starts off great, his life is good, very successful early on. As he gets older, what happens with Uzziah is he becomes prideful. He gets obsessed with power and corrupted with power. And he uses his power for all sorts of wrong things. And his life kind of ends in this tragedy because of how he basically gives in to power. There's a man named Ahaz. Ahaz is another king. Ahaz is not a normal guy. Uh, Ahaz actually brings back all of these ancient uh, practices and, and religions, and so he actually is sacrificing his firstborn son. This is a, a terrible person, a person who does one of the worst things imaginable, and they put him in the line of Jesus. Rahab, the prostitute. Tamar. Tamar's story, it's so scandalous that I can't, it's a, I can't tell it as a Christmas story. If you ever want to go read it, read it. It's terrifying. There's all these types of people mentioned in the genealogy that reveal the broad scope of those who make up the people of God in the family of Jesus. And I think what Matthew is reminding his audience is that there's brokenness in this world. Some of these people in this story have done things that are unimaginable. And yet here they are in the genealogy of Christ. Here they are in the family of Jesus. The barrier between saint and sinner is broken down. It's not just for those who are righteous and good. This story is for all people, women, Gentiles, sinners, people who are corrupt. This is a story of Jesus who is for all people. One commentator, William Barclay, says this, here at the very beginning of the gospel, we are given a hint of the all-embracing width of the love of God. God can find his servants amongst those from whom 
the respectable Orthodox would shudder away in horror. Matthew doesn't leave them out. In fact, he draws attention to them in this genealogy. So it's a list of names, and yet there's something else going on here. There's, some, there's so much more in this list that Matthew is communicating. It's a simple list of names, but it's so much more. Fifth observation I would make is that it talks about kind of these phases, right? You've got, there are 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile, and 14 from the exile to Christ. What's going on here with these phases? Well, as you'd kind of look at the larger narrative, the story of the people of God, kind of the first 14 generations is this, this group of people that are called into the promised land, and they're called for greatness. They're called to be a certain kind of people uh, who would be a blessing. It reminds us that humans were born for greatness, called by God. This second phase, though, we find everything gets broken. Humans lost their their greatness. There's this brokenness that takes place that we see in this narrative arc. And then finally, in the last 14 generations, that humans can regain their greatness. So they come out of the exile looking for redemption, that God would use his people once again. There's this kind of narrative flow to the Old Testament that that Matthew was reminding his people of. Greatness, greatness lost, and greatness restored. Again, Barclay says, in his genealogy, Matthew shows us the royalty of kingship gained, the tragedy of freedom lost, and the glory of liberty restored. And that, in the mercy of God, is the story of mankind and of each individual person. And here's one thing that you find as you, you read through the Old Testament, is it's the story of mankind, and yet it's a story that is our story as humans. We're born into this world. We're made in the image of God, male and female. And yet something gets broken down at some point. We feel this, I think, especially during the holidays. We're reminded of broken relationships, of dysfunction, reminded of things that are awkward. The world isn't right. I heard G.K. Chesterton, or I didn't hear, I read G.K. Chesterton say, of all things that are true of humans, one thing that can be said is that humans are not the way they should be. We feel that. We experience that. We see it in the news. We experience it in our relationships. There's a brokenness, a tension, a pain that we feel. And then there's this hope of restoration, hope of redemption that comes. Liberty restored. And this is the story of the gospel. Jesus enters into this messy story, willing to make things right. A couple things as we get ready for Christmas. We read through these stories, the Christmas stories. We consider the observations the first century Jews would have made, the observations that we make, not to move too quickly through these small details, but we're reminded of a few things I would like to suggest for Christmas this year. To be open to the idea that Jesus is bigger than you imagined. This idea of Jesus, bigger than you imagined. I don't know what your thoughts are on Jesus, the Son of God, where you're at kind of in your journey in this life. Maybe this is something that Jesus is foreign to you or he's this, this great person in history. But Jesus is bigger than you imagined. What Jesus is up to in this world I just want to suggest that this Christmas you would experience something more. Bigger than the boxes that you've placed him into. Surprising in how he works in this world. That he would 
enlarge your heart for what he's doing. The second thing is that Jesus is better than you imagined. That Jesus is even better than you imagined. When you consider some of the horrific people that are in this list and know that Jesus is working for the redemption of the corruption of this world, the brokenness that is in our hearts and souls. And he's doing it in ways that are even better than what we imagined, in ways that are surprising in our lives. Jesus is bigger than we imagined. Jesus is better than we imagined. And the third thing I'd like to suggest is that Jesus is with you, that Christ is with you, that Emmanuel is God with us. We celebrate Christmas as this time that God is with us. He enters into this world as a revelation to show the world what he is like through Jesus. He's with us in this place. He's with us as we leave. Whatever our circumstance is, Christ is with us. He's bigger than we imagined. He's better, and he's with us at all times. I read a Christmas story the other day about a family that was live in the Great Depression. The family that had lost a lot with the Great Depression, jobs, income, uh, they were okay. They were able to keep their house. They weren't completely uh, put out on the street. They had a son named Pete. He was six years old. And they were getting ready for Christmas one year, knowing that they didn't have a lot, knowing that they couldn't give each other gifts for Christmas. They had came up with a plan. Instead of giving each other a gift for Christmas this year with their limited resources, the way the economy was down, they decided, we'd like to create memories for each other. So what we're going to do, instead of giving a gift, is think of the best gift you can give each other, husband to wife, wife to husband, parents to kid, kid to parents. And instead of getting it, what we'd like you to do is create kind of a, a work of art that would convey what that gift is. So whether you draw it, whether you make it out of uh, cardboard boxes, whatever you can. And on Christmas, we'll open up and see what these wishes we had for each other were, how we would create them. It's kind of a, a creative idea. So Christmas comes, and the husband pulls out um, this uh, beautiful picture of uh, different jewelry. He drew it out and gave it to his wife. He said, if, if we had money this year, I would have gotten you jewelry, beautiful jewelry for you to enjoy. And she pulls out this little model of a boat that she had built out of a cardboard box, gives it to him, and says, if we ever had money, I would get you a sailboat, something for you to enjoy. And they give it, Pete comes out, their six-year-old kid, and they both give him couple different pictures. One is of a, a camping tent. If we had money, I would give you this camping tent and we could go on a family trip. And then he, Pete, the six-year-old, shows up with this picture that he'd colored with crayons. And it was the three of them holding hands, stick figures as a six-year-old would draw. And on top of it, it just said us. It just said us. And they thought about the things that they wanted to give each other for Christmas, the one thing that was actually true, the six-year-old was able to convey the presence of each other, be able to be together on Christmas. The story of Christmas is that Christ is with us in the midst of our circumstances. No matter what we've done, no matter what we're doing, this promise of the presence of God with us Jesus shows up into a world of darkness that needs hope. He says, I am here for you.
I am here. This Christmas, when it comes to all the different things that we can celebrate, the ways that we celebrate, we don't want to miss this idea that Christ is with us. He has come into this world. His presence is here. Because of that, we have hope. We celebrate this idea of the incarnation, that Christ is with us every week with the sacraments. We take this time to celebrate communion. Communion is a sacred moment of remembrance where we believe that God became man. He took on flesh and blood. He dies on the cross for the brokenness of this world, brings light to the darkness. When we go to the communion table, we take a piece of bread that represents that presence, and we break it. It's been broken open. We take a cup of juice that represents the blood, the life of Christ that was poured out and shed on the cross. We remember that his presence is with us, and through his brokenness, our brokenness is restored. As we start Advent, we remember this idea of hope. Today, we come to that communion table and remembrance. Cody's going to come back up, and we're going to take some time to reflect and to pray. My prayer for you today, and hope as a church, is that we'd be open to Jesus being bigger than what we imagine, better, that we'd be open to him walking with us in this life, that he would be with us. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you so much for these old stories, the stories of Christmas, stories that are nostalgic for us, Lord. Lord, we're reminded of your love for the world. Even in this introduction of a genealogy, a list of names, we find that we can fit in that group. In the midst of our circumstances, the things that we've done, in your family we have life. In your presence, we have salvation, redemption. Today, Lord, we start this Advent season, anticipation, with hope. We anticipate your arrival again, how ultimately, Lord, you will make all things new. And we know that this starts in our soul, and our heart, You start putting us back together in ways that are bigger than what we imagine, in ways that are better than what we imagine. Lord, we pray that you would meet with us today, that we would encounter your presence. That the fruit of your spirit would be evident in our lives as we leave. We give you this time, Lord, in your son's name we pray.